0: sermon, so I'm fumbling around here trying to get the recording going. Genesis chapter number 32, title of this afternoon's message is The Journey from Fear to Faith. The Journey from Fear to Faith. And I don't know about you, but we have seen a common theme of faith specifically in uh, the patriarchs here that we have covered Uh, That of Abraham, Isaac, and now we're going to see it very clearly in the life of Jacob. They have struggled at one time or another with this emotion, this feeling, this reality of circumstances weighing heavy. As a result, their response has been what? It's been that of fear. And uh, again, I don't think fear is something that uh, we can we can skirt in this life. At one time or another during your life, you're going to come to grips with fear and how to handle fear and how to process fear. Our response to that feeling and emotion of fear that comes as a result of our. Uh, feeble human mind and the frailty of our flesh with us not being all knowing and all wise we don't have all the answers and therefore when circumstances come into our life that maybe we weren't expecting maybe it's a surprise maybe it's just something very difficult to deal with loss tragedy difficulty trial tribulation Whether it be of of financial or or health or economic means. Uh, We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And in our human flesh, we are confronted with this emotion of of fear. Have you been there? Can you remember back at a time where you were gripped? Your heart was literally paralyzed as a result of fear. Fear. And in that moment of fear, there is an opportunity and a danger. As a Christ follower, as a believer in the word of God, we have to be able to reconcile our fears, what we're feeling in our human flesh with the character and purposes of God. That's the opportunity to do that. The danger is, is that we can continue to feed our fear and it can cast further doubt or uncertainty in the character and purposes of God. And if left unchecked, that can take us down a very, a very dark road in regards to our relationship with the Lord and others and the stability of our faith in this life that we are living. The journey from fear to faith. In order to reconcile our fears and turn to faith, we have to understand this universal plight of humanity. What are we all suffering from this side of eternity as created human beings? What is our plight? It is sin. There's a universal condition that all of us are plagued with as a result of being born into this world, and that is what? That we are all sinners. Our sin nature and the commonality of mankind to make decisions based on the prevailing winds of whatever circumstances we may be experiencing at a given moment. Have you been there? Your circumstances dictate your joy. If circumstances are good, You're happy. If circumstances are bad, you're fearful and anxious. As Christ's followers, we should have stability in our life by way of knowing that whether it is raining or whether there is great sunshine, that God is on his throne and he is sovereign over all things and all peoples at all times. All of this makes us prone to give into fear. When we look at this world around us in the days that we live in, at first glance from a human perspective, is there a lot to fear? I would admit that in my flesh, I would answer yes to that. We have a worldwide pandemic. We have racial tensions maybe that we haven't seen in generations we have economic uncertainty I mean you fill in the blank there is a lot going on right now in our day and if we're not careful we can just be overcome and paralyzed by this emotion of a fear but being a Christ follower where it doesn't make us exempt from fear but it gives us an opportunity to move from fear to faith there's a journey and there is a path to move from one to the other. And friends, this afternoon that's exactly what we see right here in Genesis chapter number thirty two. We see this we see this journey from fear to faith. The danger is that when we operate in fear, we're giving in to the weaknesses of our flesh and we fail to stand firm against the tactics, temptations of our adversary, the devil. Social unrest, worldwide pandemics, spiritual abandonment, all of this can take us down a path of fear. And friends, this afternoon in Genesis 32, God is gonna call us out of our fear if you're there at this moment. He's gonna call us out of that fear. He's gonna call us to the foot of the cross. He's gonna remind us of what Jesus has done to defeat sin, death, and hell, and the confidence and the hope that was spoken to this morning in our worship service that can carry us on and that can sustain us another day. So, have you been there? Have you been there at the crossroads of fear, floundering, potentially in the mess of your own choices and your own wisdom? It's okay to be there this morning, this afternoon, excuse me. It's okay to be right there at the crossroads. Of fear, living and floundering in the consequences of your own decisions. But God doesn't want, doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to remember the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, and he wants to take your hand, and he wants you to walk you back to the path of faith. By God's grace, There is hope for all of us at the crossroads of fear. And because if you're not at the crossroads of fear today, it may be tomorrow. It may be next month. It may be next year when the crisis of life, humanity, the brokenness of a sin world, it's going to knock on your door. And it's going to visit. And we're going to have an opportunity to approach and process fear by God's grace in a very biblical process. You see, God often allows us to experience the fruit of our own fears as part of our journey that he uses to bring us to the point of faith in our life. Our faith is strengthened. Our resolve is deepened as a result of God taking us through trials and tribulations and difficulties placing us in this world to shine as lights in the midst of darkness and the difficulty and challenge that comes with us living in a secular world where being a Christian is no longer the, 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 the prominent idea and thought and way to live your life. We are now the minority even in, yes, the great United States of America. To take God's word, the Bible, and say that it is just that, the word of God, the truth, Inspired and without error? That is the perspective of the minority in this world. And so friends, we have to be anchored by that sure and steady anchor that is Jesus Christ. Do we remember Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12? As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. Friends, you could even say that true, authentic faith in the personal work of Jesus is often paved through the fear and failure of my own sin and choices. And one of the key elements of biblical salvation is understanding that total depravity of mankind and myself, but for the grace of God. So up to this point, In Genesis 32, Jacob has certainly been aware of covenant promises. Even had quite a spiritual encounter with God back at, at Bethel in chapter number 28. Do you remember it? Do you remember the ladder? Do you remember the angels? Do you remember this dream that Jacob had back there in Genesis chapter number 28? But we haven't seen in the life of Jacob a true submission and humility of a godly disposition before a holy God that would result not just in the material benefits of a covenant promise, but would move Jacob beyond that to an authentic and genuine covenant relationship. You see, up to this point, what is Jacob being concerned about? Manipulating all the circumstances of life so that he can maximize the covenant blessings, the covenant promises, The expansion of his household, getting what he wants. This has been Jacob up until now, has it not? And now in chapter 32, we're going to see a shift in Jacob's life and his demeanor and his disposition where he's going to move away from being so concerned about material possessions through the covenant promises. And he's going to view God Through the lens of a true covenant relationship. That's going to be a key distinction this afternoon as we look at Genesis 32. And can you not empathize with that distinction? In our American brand of Christianity, do we not sometimes relate to God in the way that Jacob has related to God through these last few chapters Hey, we're okay with raising our hand and identifying with Christ when it's popular. We're okay with having a relationship with God when there's something to receive and something that I can benefit from. But when things get difficult, when there's a looming conflict, when all the material possessions start fading away and what do we have left? Is Christ enough for you? Is a relationship with Jesus Christ enough? Or are you trying to add on something to your relationship with him or get something in return? Friends, we would call that potentially a works based salvation or we would call that not salvation at all. Because we don't give our lives to Christ for the purpose of getting something in return, right? We give our life to ultimately lose it, this side of attorney, but knowing that we'll gain it in this next. Jacob is wrapping up, untangling one twisted web as he flees Laban, and he is confronted with yet another web lingering from 20 years prior as he uh, is forced to deal with uh, his, his brother and the sins that he committed against him and the deceitfulness that he deployed in his relationship with his brother Esau. Jacob is weary. He's fearful. And at the end of his rope, did you feel it when Pastor Dave was reading the the passage uh, this afternoon? Did you fear, feel and, and fear the desperation that was there in Jacob's life? It's at the end of his rope. But friends, This afternoon, I want to remind us that this is where God works. He works most mightily and in great ways when we are at the end of our rope. This is where God draws us to walk in faith, trusting him through it all. So the big idea of our text this afternoon is this, because God always keeps his promises, our greatest fears. I don't know what they are for you. Whatever your greatest fears, your greatest anxieties, your greatest uncertainties that you have right now in this moment and in the days to come, those greatest fears can and will be overcome by the gift of his grace enabled faith in our lives. Let me read that big idea one more time. Because God always keeps his promises. Do we believe that this afternoon? Because God always keeps his promises. Our greatest fears can and will be overcome by the gift of his grace-enabled faith in our lives. So chapter 32 represents, again, a pivotal shift in the life of Jacob. And this afternoon, we're gonna look at just three elements. We'll call them of authentic faith. As we work through this journey from fear to faith, the first point is this. Jacob is confronted with fear and seeks wisdom through prayer. Jacob is confronted with fear and seeks wisdom through prayer. Again, we we know of Jacob at this point of his life, all that we know about him. As we've seen the interactions, we've seen how he's pursued his Uh, His wives. We see how he's interacted with Laban. We see how he's interacted with his parents, his brothers Esau. Everything that we know about Jacob up to this point if we're all honest with ourselves has not been very flattering. Right? But God in his perfect plan in his perfect sovereignty, in his wisdom, Jacob was chosen before he was even born to be heir to this covenant relationship with God, right? We had the whole story. We're reading the completed scriptures. As we read it, we're thinking, man, did, did God potentially make a mistake here? Did he get the right guy? I mean, you look at Jacob and what he's doing, he's habitually lying, deceiving, manipulating over and over and over again. He arrogantly pursued the expansion of his household at all costs. He's just spent 20 years again, floundering through conflict after conflict with Laban. And now finally, he's broken free only to find himself forced to deal with the skeletons in his closet. And this is where the truth of God's word that be sure your sins Will find you out. There is not enough time that can pass for the consequences and the justice of God and his perfect holiness and righteousness to potentially be worked out in our lives. And here we are 20 years later. And Jacob is returning back to Canaan, fleeing Leban Laban. And he's confronted now with going from one major conflict to potentially a greater conflict. And he just can have no peace in his life at this point. Again, this guy, if you're talking about chasing your tail, this is him. Just one thing after another. This is Jacob. But why has his life been categorized by that type of lifestyle? It's because he's largely been trusting in whose wisdom? His own. Doing his own way and his own understanding. And friends, guess what? When we do that, is our way going to be straight? Is our way going to be clear? Is there going to be a light unto our path? No. Only when we submit our way and our will and our understanding to that of the Lord's. So Jacob's returning home, forced to deal with the sins of his past. So what do we have here in these first 12 verses? Jacob is continuing on his journey back to the land of Canaan and he encounters what right away? This is interesting. He encounters the angels of God. The Lord. Let's read verse one. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. This is an interesting verse. There's not a lot of context of what's going on with these angels, why they're there, the purpose of the angels, how they're interacting with potentially Jacob and, and others, uh, potentially in that area at that time. It's just noted that Jacob sees them. He observes angels, multi- multitudes of them. And he identifies that this is God's camp. Now, this is interesting that the angels meet Jacob right there at that time, at that moment. Because there is the potential, as we continue to work through this, as Jacob and Esau come to this collision course that's inevitable, that there could be a great conflict that could arise from Jacob and Esau and rightfully so there's been lying manipulation taking advantage of and now 20 years to sit and fester on those realities right and so there could be a great measure of conflict that could arise and what is here when Jacob arrives angels I find that interesting There's a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of different ideas um, of, of what these angels represent and why they're there. Much of that is speculation. Why? Because it's just not explicitly called out in Scripture. And so if you can remember back in our interpretive model, we're going to take a literal historical approach to the book of Genesis. And so we're not going to try to read in to something that's not there. Um, But what do we know largely about angels, right? So that's what we want to focus on when we don't have something in our text. What are some of the purposes of angels? We know that often God uses angels as messengers, right? That's the literal um, meaning of the term angel is messenger, right? They're sent to to proclaim glad tidings, to give revelation, um, to give clarity to a certain situation, uh, prophecy. Uh, They're involved in in some of those as well. And so we have angels here. We don't know the reason or the purpose. There's a lot of ambiguity here, but we do know that there's the presence of God by way of angels that we'll see revisited later in our passage as well. Just doing some high level, just remembering through a scripture of the ministry of angels. um, I resonated with this psalm. 91 verses 11 and 12 says this, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. God uses angels, no doubt, in this world. Um, with us being bound by this flesh, uh, we don't always see the angels and principalities and the spiritual warfare that is going on around us. But there's no doubt that God uses angels in a very uh, special and and purposeful way. Uh, There are angels and different kinds of angels in heaven worshiping and praising God and, and doing his bidding ultimately in this world. So these could be, again, ministering angels that were sent to encourage Jacob or protect him from harm. But again, we don't have a lot to work with in regards to the very specific purpose in this context right here. But we do know that Jacob acknowledges them. And as a result of seeing them, Jacob named the place Mehanim, which literally means what? Two camps. There were two camps. There was Jacob's camp and there was this camp of of angels of which Jacob proclaimed, this is God's camp. Uh, These two camps could also be alluding to the splitting of. Of Jacob's camp that will come in just a, a few verses as he begins to plan and, and scheme of how to potentially thwart an attack from Esau. Uh, but either way, Jacob names this place right here, literally meaning two camps. So in verse three, we move on. Jacob knows he must address this situation with his brother Esau. So what does Jacob do? He sends messengers ahead to try to sweeten things up a bit for his brother Esau, right? It seems like the wise and logical thing to do. If you know you've got a 20-year-old conflict that's been sitting and festering, you probably shouldn't be the one that goes first, right? Uh, Send some messengers out in front. uh, Try to let them know what's going on, who you are, where you came from, what you've been up to in the last two decades, and ultimately, what is Jacob attempting to do? He's, He's attempting to get a pulse on the temperature of Esau toward himself. But is he ready just to kill me? Is he ready just to attack at at first mention of my name? What's going on? And so he sends these these messengers, probably realistically scouts ahead to to get a pulse on what's going on in Esau's camp and how is he going to receive this idea that, hey, guess what? Jacob's back uh, 20 years later. But what does he do in, in verse number three? He boasts a bit. Uh, in, in verse number four and five, he uh, he tells about what he's been up to and all that he's accomplished. Verse five, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I've sent to tell you, my Lord, in order that I may find favor in your sight. So again, in this, this first point right here that Jacob is confronted with fear and seeks wisdom through prayer, Jacob is in this process now of sizing up how big of a problem he truly has on his hands. Ultimately, best case scenario, that he finds favor in Esau's eyes. verse number six, these messengers come back with some troubling news from Jacob's perspective. What do they come back saying? There's no need for Jacob to go to Esau. Why? Because Esau's, Coming to Jacob, and he's not just coming by himself. He's coming with a host of men, four hundred to be exact, uh, to meet Jacob. Uh, can you fear or can you feel the fear of Jacob beginning to rise and and grow as he's gathering more details from these messengers? So, what is Jacob's response to these realities? Look with me in verse number seven. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He was greatly afraid and distressed. Hmm. These are amazing words, aren't they? Again, without just beating Jacob over the head with a two by four and just painting him out to be a horrible guy. Let's remember our total depravity. Let's remember our propensity to lean on our understanding, our way. Let's remember last week and the week before that and the month before that where fear has slipped into our life by way of us focusing on our circumstances other than the character and purposes of God, forgetting who he is and his sovereignty as creator and Lord over all things. And we focus on the reality of circumstances. Fear slips in. What do we do? We often... Act. We make decisions in the midst of fear that are often counterintuitive to pursuing the Lord, pursuing a relationship with him. This is exactly what Jacob does in fear. Jacob plans. He almost uh, deploys this shoot, then aim type of mentality. He hears the news from the messengers, Esau's coming, 400 men, I'm scared. Verse number seven, what does he do? Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking in fear, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, again, there's no indication that that's going to happen, but 400 men are coming. If Esau attacks the one, then the camp that is left will escape. Shoot, then aim. Have you been there before? Fear slips in, you act, you make a decision. Potentially counterintuitive to God's word and the wisdom that we see in scriptures. And then, and then what do we do? We offer up a prayer to the Lord. Have been there? Fear grips your life. You're confronted with horrible, difficult circumstances. Large, small. You know what they are in your life. What do you do? You act in that fear. You plan your own way. On your own understanding, you make a decision. And the Lord convicts. The Lord draws you back. He reminds you of who he is. He reminds you of his character. He reminds you of his promises. He draws you back to a place. And you remember, you know what? I need to pray. I need to pursue the Lord. I need to pursue his wisdom, his understanding in these circumstances of life that make no sense to me. But I must run to the one who has all wisdom and all understanding, knowing the end from the beginning creator of all things. Have you been there before? So Jacob, what does he do? He seeks the Lord in prayer. So it's not necessarily the order that we would have hoped for out of Jacob. But can you empathize with how often and how easy it is for us to approach fear in this manner, to continue the struggle, the squirming, the scheming, that we see out of Jacob here in the beginning of verse number seven. With every movement, what happens? We become more and more entangled with that fear. We feed that fear and thus it grows. And as our fears grow, the subsequent impact is that our faith decreases. This is the process of fear and ultimately sin. We see this in James chapter number one. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, for he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Have we seen the truth of that lived out in the life of Jacob? He is pursuing his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to what? To sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So friends, this is why it's important to, in the midst of fear, to stop. Don't act. Don't make decisions. Don't pursue your own understanding in your own way. Just, just stop for a moment and do what? What? pray. This is what Jacob should have done before he puts this plan in motion. Fear will lead us to sin and sin, if allowed to linger, will always lead us to a place of spiritual isolation, famine, and ultimately death. We know as it was promised all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis. But Jacob finally engages in prayer and we see it in verse number nine. Jacob reminds the Lord that it was he who told him to return back to Canaan for the purpose of doing good. And now, look, Jacob only sees one scenario playing out and it doesn't involve anything good. Jacob is fearful of his brother Esau, an attack of 400 men and wiping out his household. He's acting in fear. Look at me in verse number 10. This is where we see a shift in Jacob's disposition and and demeanor. We see this phrase. Jacob says, I am not what? Worthy. I love that. I am not worthy. This is the first indication that Jacob has come to the end of his rope that we spoke to in our introduction. It's an acknowledgement that God truly has been with him and the success and growth that he has experienced, the protection that he has experienced up to this point. It is only because of, I love this phrase, look with me here in verse number 10, the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. The steadfast love and the faithfulness that God has shown towards Jacob. It's only because of God's grace and his faithfulness and his steadfast love that Jacob is where he is at that moment. There's nothing that Jacob did. God chose Jacob. He chose to be in relationship, covenant relationship with Jacob. God initiated and sustained and is now going to protect for future generations, this covenant relationship that will continue on through Jacob. So he does acknowledge the character and the working of the Lord in his life. And then in verse 11, Jacob makes this appeal before the Lord for what? Deliverance. What what does Jacob pray for Deliverance, because again, he circles back to this human emotion because he fears Esau and is afraid of an attack. So even in the midst of pouring out his heart before the Lord and remembering that it's because of his steadfast love and faithfulness, remembering the character of God that has brought him this far, he still is grappling with and struggling with this emotion of what Fear. we see for the first time in Jacob, or maybe the first time in a long time, transparency with God. We see an element of vulnerability of Jacob before a holy God. And he is honest. Jacob, the deceiver, is honest before the Lord of what he is feeling and what he's struggling with. Friends, it's difficult many times in the in the heat of fear in the heat of the struggle, the circumstance, the difficulty, the trial. Transparency, vulnerability and honesty before God is easier said than done. But this is what Jacob deploys before God. And just a quick side note on the ministry of prayer. This is one of the purposes that God gave us prayer to simply pour out our hearts before him who is not this distant, uninterested ogre of a God. No. God, Yahweh, Elohim, El Shaddai, the God that we see right here in Genesis, he is our creator, he is our father, he is pursuing a covenant relationship with his people and guess what, he wants to know them. And so it's okay to be transparent, to expose the weakness and the difficulties of our flesh and the challenges and the turmoil in our heart. We need to run boldly before the throne of grace. I remember Hebrews 4. In this idea, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Friends, do you remember that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, modeled this level of transparency as he was at the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out, sweating drops of blood before a holy God, overwhelmed with potentially fear. As an all knowing God, he knows what's about to occur. He knows the shame, the turmoil, the difficulty The separation of God, the son, Jesus Christ from his father, that he will about to take on the sins of a world, past, present and future and atone for them through his blood. And he says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus Christ modeled this level of transparency in prayer before a holy God. And friends, prayer is the most underutilized, underrated resource that God has given us in our Christian life. Friend, was the last time you on your knees pouring out your heart and soul before a holy God attempting to reconcile the pain and the difficulty and the hurts that you're experiencing in your life and that, that's going on in this world? This is where God meets us, in the prayer closet, at the end of our rope, wrestling with what to do and how to handle it. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so Jacob finishes with imploring Yahweh to be faithful to his covenant covenant promise you see it there in verse number 12 Jacob says but you said I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude he is in essence saying Lord it is you that has been faithful to me and don't let your steadfast love falter now here is the thing that Jacob has set out to get clarity on. Lord, will you be faithful to your covenant promises? You have taken me thus far, and is this how it is going to end? Esau, with his 400 men, will attack and decimate my household. grappling with, reconciling the circumstances that he's experiencing with the covenant promises of the Lord. But friends, this afternoon, we need to be reminded that God will always be true to keep his promises. Uh, How many times have we said that in the book of Genesis? Probably roll your eyes when, when, when we say that. But I tell you what, if there is Another one thing, there's been a number of one things to take away from the book of Genesis. But there's one thing to take away from the book of Genesis. It's this, that God is true to keep his promises to you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Although your heart and flesh may feel, fail this side of eternity, guess what? We have a hope. He's defeated sin, death, and hell. There's an empty tomb. The resurrection happened, praise God. So what do we have to fear this side of eternity? What can man do to us when the tomb is empty? Amen? There's great hope there, friends. So here's the irony in this prayer of Jacob. Does the Lord need reminding of his promises from Jacob? Does the Lord need to be reminded what promises he has established with Abraham that have been passed on to Isaac and now Jacob? No, no. God doesn't need to be reminded of his promises, but Jacob reminds the Lord of his promises. But who is the one that's actually being reminded in this prayer? Is it not Jacob? The Lord loves hearing his promises, but his promises were given for whom? For us. For hope, for encouragement. For perseverance, for steadfastness, for sanctification, for completing the Great Commission. There, is, there are promises that God has given us in his word and he knows them all and he will keep them all. It is we that often need to be reminded of who God is and what He what it is that he has already done in our Lives, friends. that's why I said to stop in that moment of fear don't act don't plan don't scheme don't make choices just stop and remember God remember his character remember his faithfulness remember his promises remember what he's done in the past remember how he's working today and remember the hope that you have in the days ahead through the promises the word of God and friends that is a recipe 100% of the time to take us from fear to faith I'm saying it's gonna be easy. There's no cliches that automatically take fear out of our heart and our mind. Circumstances are real, they linger, there's real loss and struggle and difficulty and hurts. But the promise is sustained. God is true. His character is that of one that cannot do anything but keep his promises. So maybe you, like Jacob, are gripped. In a moment of fear this afternoon or even taking action based on that spirit of fear. So what should you do? Again, my call to action this afternoon based off the word of God is for us to stop, to reflect, to remember, and thirdly, to repent. And in that moment, we won't give in to the spirit of fear, but rather we will claim the spirit of a power of love and of of a sound mind. So point number one this afternoon was Jacob is confronted with fear and seeks wisdom through prayer. Point number two, Jacob is confronted with fear and pursues peace through repentance. Jacob is confronted with fear and seeks or excuse me, pursues peace through repentance. Repentance. So at first glance, this next section in our text here, it might look like Jacob is just throwing stuff and possessions and wealth at Esau to hopefully win him over, right? You kind of get that maybe the first time you read it, it's just like, man, he's just, I mean, this is a lot of livestock and possessions. He's just like, here you go, Esau. Does this make it go away, right? But hold on a second, right? I won't take Dave's, thunder from chapter 33, but it's in chapter 33 that we get an indication of what these possessions, these livestock that he handed over to Esau, what they really represented to Jacob and his perspective on them as he gifted them to Esau. He wasn't trying to put a bandaid on something. Jacob was repenting through the gift of this livestock through these material possessions, Jacob is acknowledging, I have done a great and substantial wrong to you, my brother, in our relationship. And thus, I will give in a manner that I feel it, that is substantive, that hurts, that provides me at some manner of loss as a result of this gift. Look at me verse number 20. For he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of and afterward I shall see his face. So we see in in the verses prior, we just simply see the the breakdown of the, the livestock. I won't spend a lot of time there there's no hidden meanings there. It's just literally the numbers of, of livestock that, that, that Jacob selected to pass on to Esau. He gives them instruction to make some space between them. There seems to be about three caravans of, um, of these possessions that are heading down the road um, and making their way to Esau. And he lets them know that when they see Esau, this is exactly what they're supposed to say, that Jacob is behind and and he's, he's coming, but again, there's distance still, right? There's still some distance here. And so this phrase, we see this phrase in verse 20, I may appease him. Literally, this means I may appease his face. Jacob is looking for the countenance to positively be impacted as a result of this show of repentance. This final phrase in verse number 20, perhaps He will accept me. Do you see it there? Perhaps he, meaning Esau, will accept me, Jacob. This phrase here could be translated, perhaps he will lift my face. So there is um, an emotional struggle within Jacob as a result of peeling back the layers of this onion that have been sitting and festering for 20 years. And Jacob is physically troubled as a result of these circumstances and having to deal with this encounter with Esau. And so this idea of accepting, accepting Jacob and Jacob being able to lift the face of Esau, there's this mutual and hopefully reciprocal response to this show of repentance where there could be potentially peace. Peace. Jacob is troubled. What does he do in verse 21? He sends the gift to Esau in hopes that it would begin the process of bringing peace to their relationship. He then, what does he do? He stays the night in the camp. I think there's a quick point of application here for us. When we wrong another person, don't wait 20 years to deal with it, right? Is that pretty obvious? When we wrong intentionally, I mean, we know the dynamics there between Jacob and Esau, Jacob intentionally manipulated, deceived, and lied to, to his father and to his brother. Uh, it, was, it was just a horrible, just one issue after another in the life of Jacob. When we intentionally wrong another person, what should we do? We should uh, pursue that person. We should pursue reconciliation. We should pursue healing with that individual. Deal with it quickly. We have language. Do you remember a language in our covenant that specifically addresses this? Uh, that we will deal with uh, issues swiftly. Meaning what? We don't want there to be a week, a month, a year, 10 years, let alone 20 years as represented here. We want to deal with differences swiftly and quickly and, and and pursue reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that natural for us to do that? Is it natural for us to quickly acknowledge the wrong and pursue reconciliation, uh, to offer uh, repentance before the Lord and for the one we've offended to confess that sin, um, It's not, right? We have our sin nature. It's easier, seems to be, in maybe the temptation of our sin to live in denial of that wrong, to ignore the impact of that wrong in a given relationship. It's easier to just simply ignore our grievances with others. It's easier to allow the hurt, the pain to fester and grow instead of trusting the steadfast love And faithfulness of a holy God and all knowing God to reconcile our differences with each other swiftly. I circled back to that phrase. Did you get it? The steadfast love and faithfulness of a holy God. Pursue reconciliation quickly. Quickly. So Jacob is confronted with fear and seeks wisdom through prayer. Secondly, Jacob is confronted with fear and pursues peace through repentance. Our final point this afternoon is this. Jacob is confronted with fear and desires blessing through humility. Desires blessing through humility. So verse number 22, Jacob sends the rest of his family across the ford of the Jabbok, right? Which would likely have been the Blue River in modern day Jordan. So if you know your geography there in the Middle East, that's, that's where we're at right now. Um, I'm, I'm not the Middle East uh, guru on geography, but I, I did look it up, and it's, it's kind of neat, right? It, I love the historicity of the Bible for us to be able to track these places and these names back to um, Real places, right? I, I think that's a neat aspect of going through Genesis for us to be able to experience that. So we're in modern day Jordan area, and he is described as being left alone in verse number twenty-four. Do you see it there? So Jacob has sent these three convoys ahead. He sent the rest of his family across um, the ford or the opening of this Jabbok the river, and now he is left by himself alone. Remember what he has just communicated in previous verses. He is distraught. He's just poured out his heart to the Lord in prayer. And this moment of solitude would have likely been for additional prayer or potentially in this final section, it would have been seeking additional wisdom from the Lord. But here in this final section, similar to our opening verses, you'll remember we talked about the ambiguity of those that camp of angels Uh, We have another element of ambiguity here in this this final section as we work our way through understanding who in the world is Jacob wrestling with by himself all through the night. So, again, in these challenging passages, we want to focus our attention on what we do know instead of spending endless and potentially worthless hours on speculative details that just aren't there, all right? So I want to point out just some, some observations as we work through this final section of verses of what we know about this man who is wrestling with, with Jacob. Verse number 22, the same night he arose and took his two wives and two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Let's read on verse number uh, 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So the first observation is simply about this man that he wrestled with him through the night and he simply touched Jacob's hip and it, what happened? The hip became out of socket. Now there's some different nuances to this word. This uh, can be used in some context as a violent strike. um, But not unique to our wonderful Hebrew language is it can also literally just mean a touch, right? That, um, that literally something was touched and as a result, you know, something occurred. Um, the wrestling in the context of this, it's probably more of a nice little blow to the hip. This isn't like just a little um, like supernatural touch. It could have been, right? But again, we're talking about wrestling. If you've ever wrestled, Um, in any way. I I wrestled through eighth grade and um, I can remember literally just for six minutes, right? We had three periods of two minutes and um, just being spent. I mean, I mean, just couldn't even breathe, right? I mean, it's the hardest six minutes of some of my life that I remember. And Jacob and this man wrestled to what? The breaking of the day. So we're talking hours upon hours of these two men struggling and wrestling with each other. And at the break of the day, this man touched Jacob's hip, knocked it out of of socket. That's the first observation. The second observation is this. Jacob observes something in this man that would be worthy of a blessing from him. We see that in verse number 26. It says this, then he said, let me go for the day has broken. This is the man. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Okay, this is a unique aspect. There's something about this interaction, this encounter, this wrestling with this man that Jacob observes something in him that would draw out from him that, hey, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. What's my point in that? There's something unique. About this man, Jacob, from the testimony of his lips, observes the uniqueness of this man and says, you are worthy of blessing me. And I'm not going to let you go until you do. Third observation, Jacob is renamed to Israel by this man, indicating that he has striven With God. We see this in verse number 28. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So there's more nuance of this man coming out. Now he has the authority and the ability to rename an individual. We know that. Uh, That only comes by way of God's authority over redemption, right? To be able to change the identity of someone for them to be known as this and for them to now be known uh, in a different way for a different purpose. That comes by way of the hand of the Lord. Fourth observation is this man indicates that he uh, need not tell Jacob his name because he should know who he is. And Jacob receives a blessing from this man. We see this in verse number 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. It's interesting that this man that has revealed himself to Jacob who wrestles with him through the night doesn't respond to his question of what his name is. Most theologians would indicate that it's because at this point it is clear to Jacob that he should know who he is by way of his interaction uh, with this man. The final observation is this. Jacob testifies based on his face-to-face encounter with this man that it was no one other than God himself. And what does he do? He names the place Peniel, meaning the face of God. I, I take just a few moments to break down those observations. Why? Because there's a lot of controversy around this passage in regards to what was going on, who did he wrestle with, and what was the purpose of it. Uh, the conclusion that I would come to, based off the study, based off the observations that we see in this section of Scripture, is that here in these uh, verses, based off the testimony of the man himself, and based off the direction that we see from Jacob that we likely have right here in Genesis 32, a Christophany. Meaning that Christ, in his pre-incarnate form, revealed himself in a literal, physical way and made himself known to Jacob. So this wasn't just a dream. This wasn't another Bethel moment. This wasn't Jacob falling asleep and envisioning this happening. Jacob literally wrestled with God and what do we do then with this reality if this was truly God Christ himself in physical form what do we do with this idea that Jacob prevailed right God is all-knowing all-powerful omniscient creator of all things spoke all things into existence how can a a simple man prevail over God in as he wrestles with him And I don't know that we have, again, a clear answer because it's not explicitly described here. But most would indicate that um, this wasn't a wrestling match to assert power and authority. This wasn't a wrestling match to pin the enemy to the ground and wait for that three second call and to pin him out. This wasn't that type of wrestling mask, but rather, what do we see here in the prayer that we have present before these verses? We see a wrestling, and uncertainty of grappling with the circumstances that he's dealing with fear, but yet trusting in the finished work of God that he has seen through his steadfast love and faithfulness. There's a wrestling of what? Fear and faith. So this wasn't a wrestling match to assert power and authority, but rather more of a physical display of potentially what was going on inside of Jacob's heart. He was wrestling with fully trusting a sovereign Lord over succumbing to the fears of a potentially vengeful brother that was headed his way with 400 men. He's wrestling with trusting God, walking in faith and not taking matters into his own hands. Jacob needed to be humbled. Jacob needed to have his confidence taken down a few notches in himself and his confidence in God taken up a few notches. There needed to be a recalibration of who his confidence was placed in. And through the process of this prayer, of his transparency and authenticity before a holy God, through this process of wrestling one-on-one with God, with the Christophany, God himself, revealing himself to Jacob, and through God afflicting uh, pain in his hip that he would suffer from a limp for the rest of his life, what do we have now? What Jacob do we have present at this moment? So Jacob is... There, alone, humbled, limping. And now, in that state, he's about to do what? Go and meet his brother. At this moment, Jacob didn't have anything to offer but faith in God. Remembering his steadfast love and faithfulness. And that is what would sustain Jacob through the remainder of his life. He's not perfect. We're going to see some more really big mess-ups in the life of Jacob. So in, unless we think that this moment of Jacob is a snap-me-perfect and I've got it all figured out, cleaned up, picked myself up by my bootstraps, it's not that. God continues to work on Jacob. He continues to teach him the path Of faith, And we're going to see a testimony at the end of Jacob's life that's going to reveal the realities of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness through his imperfect faith, through his failures, through his wins, through his successes. God is there moment by moment working through the life of Jacob, the journey, the journey from fear to faith. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I pray that you would use it. To change us. To be more like your son Jesus Christ. I pray father I beg of you. That we would not just allow your word. To go in one ear and out the other. That we would not just be hearers of your word. Deceiving ourselves. But we would be doers of it. We would obey. We would take action. We would take an account of our heart. And our life right now. Father I pray there's somebody here. This afternoon who is struggling with fear. Who is succumbing to the realities of fear that is feeding their fear instead of confessing it and casting it at the foot of the cross and receiving that grace and that help in our time of need. I pray that that person would be encouraged by the life of Jacob. That as he prayed in his prayer, uh, praying back those promises to you and that we would find healing. Father James five sixteen tells us that we confess to one another and pray for one another that we will be healed. Father, I pray that we would not lean on our own understanding, but this afternoon we would take a step of obedience, a step of confession and repentance, and that we would find that healing for our soul, that we would be free from fear and anxiety, the uncertainty that comes with it, and that we would have hope and confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that we would be emboldened to take that hope to a world that so desperately needs it. Father, do a work in Jesus' name. Amen.